If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Chris Nell into the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives. Chris, welcome to this program, Real People. Let's get stuck in by asking you to give a little picture of your life here in Wanaka. Tell us what your day is like and, and where you are and who you are and, and what you're doing. So my wife, Uta, and myself, we are managing the Zula Lodge in Albertown, which is, uh, you could probably say, a suburb of Wanaka. It's just on the other side of Mount Iron. And the Zula Lodge, most Kiwis say Zulu Lodge, but it's not. It's not African. It's Zula. And uh, it's a backpackers. It's just basically backpackers with um, sort of a lodge backpackers combination. It's a beautiful place. We just love the place. We're so proud to, and uh, privileged to be able to manage it. And uh, we're always looking to welcome guests to the Zula. That's what we do here. And how long have you been uh, at Zula, Chris? Yeah, it's been yeah, just over five and a half years now. Can't believe it. It feels like yesterday we came. Um, time's just flown so fast. But yeah, wonderful time that we've had here at, in Wanaka. What a privilege. So one of the reasons I was keen to interview you, Chris, was because I came across you, as you know, um, because I heard about your Bible study groups, your Bible study evenings, and I came I came along to them, and I so I found it so refreshing for the way in which you were able to go through the Bible with us and transport us back into the milieu, the atmosphere of the Middle East at the time of Christ and before, and the the incredible history in the Middle East. For me. It was quite refreshing. I'd never quite walked into anyone who could, as it were, capture the atmosphere of those times. And it really shone a new light for me. And I saw many, many people in that Bible study class from all around the area, from different backgrounds, different religious kind of traditions. And um, I just wondered, how on earth did you end up doing that? Yeah, Jerry, what, what a question. My goodness, where do I even start, you know? Um, so let's just go back about the Zula. The Zula is actually, interestingly enough, an Arabic word, which means place of refuge or place of hospitality. Um, so, yeah, and this just really helps to what the Zula is about you know it's a it's a place where we really want to create uh, we want to create a safe space where people really feel safe welcome and people from all nationalities um it just so happens that the name attracts a lot of people from the Middle East you know uh Jews Arabs uh we've had people from all over the world come and stay with us which has been absolutely fantastic and all of them would ask, why do you call it the Zula? You know, because for them, 
it just rings a bell and say, this is unique. So the name itself has caused, has brought about a huge uh, attraction to to people from, you know, specifically from the Middle East, uh, Israeli and uh, Arabs. So it's it's just a really wonderful thing to host them. But coming back to your question about the Bible studies, um, you know, it's started by chance. And I just want to say, first of all, the Zula Lodge is not a Christian backpacker. It is just a normal backpacker, happened to be run by two Christians. And um, we just started a small Bible study, you know, just a few people who were interested in the Jewish background of our faith. And this Bible study just suddenly just grew and grew. And we've been going for, you know, I thought this was going to take us two, three, four weeks and we'd be done. But we've been going now for oh, probably good on four years. And I think what makes us a little bit different is that we really go into the Hebraic backgrounds. In other words, at the time when the New Testament was written, what was it like in the state of Israel, in the country of Israel? The time that Jesus walked in Israel, what was the culture? What was the geopolitics? All these things that played a role had a huge influence on the audience, the, the first century Jews, and also had an influence on how Jesus portrayed or communicated to his audience. And if we look at the, the gospel writers, you know, we can see how each of them have a different audience in mind. And Matthew specifically, you know, he's writing to the to the Jews. So to really understand Matthew, we have to step back 2,000 years and step into the first century Israel. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I've been fortunate, believe me, it's not my own intelligence that brings these things out. I've been fortunate to have access to um, real scholars who have been studying this. So you know, I'm just I'm just getting their material and I'm just sort of facilitating it. Again, to get back to your question, why is this different? I think it's just our approach. That's a unique approach. It's and you know, we're not um bringing it from the perspective of a specific church or denomination. This is absolutely independent and just doing it from an inductive Bible study method saying let's look at what the scripture says say what is the background let's understand it from that perspective and i think it absolutely describes what i found when i came across you and was able to attend your bible study groups and it struck me almost immediately that i was very welcome there regardless of my background and regardless of my beliefs in fact here was a fantastic opportunity just to understand what the words mean in the context of the culture 
and it remains really fascinating to do this. And I think it's a real service that you offer, Chris. I know you don't charge anything for people to come along. It's something you're able to offer and gift to, to all of us here. And I believe it makes a real contribution to the life of this community in all sorts of ways. A, a group of people coming together regularly, sharing ideas, we end up talking about our life. In fact, more than anything, it reminded me of a Voices for Freedom group, meeting and come together on a regular basis and sharing our thoughts and our ideas. But it gave us a focus on the, it was a shared interest in, you know, what is probably the most important book in the history of mankind, you know, that mm-hmm. if there's one book we really ought to be knowing about, I think, in this, it would be that book, <laughs> the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, as you would know, Jerry, what is so, so lovely about our group is that we come from so many different backgrounds and it's no click whatsoever. We just welcome people with different opinions. We love to have people put their opinions on the table, their thoughts, their their understanding. And, you know, we can wrestle with these things and and we can walk away and still completely disagree with each other, but still have that respect, that love, and that enjoyment of just enjoying fellowship, enjoying community, and just loving people. That's what it's about. That's the main thing, to love, you know, and to just create that safe environment where we can talk about these things. Isn't that just, yeah. Maybe it was was that your observation as well? I hope so. One hundred percent. And Chris, how old are you? Oh my goodness! Now you're getting personal. Hey, I, I've stopped counting, but I think I'm sixty. <laughs> you're sixty. Just for the listeners, you know, you're talking about a lovely big teddy bear of a guy who does absolutely um, exude the the warmth and friendliness and welcoming that you can you can hear even over you know over the sound waves. And you know, I kind of think of a better personality to just make people feel at home and welcome. And if ever I met someone who was doing something for which he was almost perfectly trained and qualified by life, probably more than anything, um, then you are that person. You just emanate welcome in your whole personality, Chris. So it's just great to have a chance to talk to you about what you do. Uh, You're so kind. But, you know, it is about people, isn't it? You know, if if we go through life without loving people and caring for people, my goodness, what have we been doing on this earth? I think we would have missed something really important. Are you telling me that there is something more important than real estate in New Zealand? (laughs) Well, okay, second most then. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the reasons for this program, Chris, is I just like to inquire and delve into what makes people tick. And I'm already getting a very strong sense of that. I wonder what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning. Oh, yeah. What is it? You know, all the 101 jobs that needs to be done. Come, let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Toilets need to be cleaned. You know, beds need to be made. There's just so many things that get you out of bed. But for us, it's really a joy getting out of bed and say, wow, here's another beautiful day. Look at this. Another day full of packed with opportunities. 
Um, another day of just enjoying life, being a blessing. Um, and just to see, you know, we don't wake up and say, oh, today I'm going to do exactly this and this and that. You know, it's the basic stuff. But every day brings a surprise. Every day brings something different. And that is what I absolutely love about my life, our lives here at, at the Zula Lodge. There is no one day that's like the other. And I thrive on that. I just love the surprise and the variation in each day. That's That to me is what really gets me going. And you mentioned a team. Does that mean you have a group of people that you're working with there at Zula Lodge? Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, it's my wife and myself. We, you know, she's my slave and I'm her slave. And uh, we're just loving it. Uh, we form a wonderful team. But um, we also have, in the summertime, volunteers who come, you know, who share our hearts, have the same, just burden for people. and. Uh, you know, so it's an opportunity for us to just bring them in under our wings and um, walk a road with them, you know, because these are a young lions. Lion cubs, they, you know, they, they're still starting to growl. And, you know, for myself as an old lion, I can say, you know, I've learned this lesson in life. I've learned that lesson in life, you know. And just encourage them. You know, it's so beautiful. Just encourage them to to get their focus right, to, yeah, priorities right, and to encourage them in their walk of of, of life. It's not always easy. There's, there's many heartaches. There's many challenges. But at the end of the day, it's a beautiful world and a beautiful life that we have. You sound like you got a bit of a, a what I would call an elder role, a role of the elder, which has been fast disappearing in our society. But the chance for um, older people to share what they've learned to younger people, would that be an accurate description of part of what you're doing there? Yes, 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 absolutely it is. And, you know, Jerry, you're so right. Um, that is, that's a, been a gift that is maybe disappearing um, or not as strongly emphasized as it should be. I think there's nothing like an elder, a parent, um, an uncle, um, just somebody who's walked through life, who's gained experience, gained wisdom to support the younger people. Um, you know, the world that they're growing up in, I can hardly... Uh, imagine, you know, it's so vastly different from my world. But still, that doesn't mean that I don't have anything to say to them. Um, on the contrary, it could mean even more. But the young people need guidance. They're looking for guidance. They're looking for, for strength, for support, for encouragement. Who doesn't need encouragement? You know, especially amongst these young ones. And uh, sometimes the world can be portrayed so negatively. You know, ah, oh, the world's about to end, and it's this problem, that problem. And to say no, 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 no. It's we've we've been through world wars, we've been through all kinds of famines um, and pestilences. It's nothing new. It's fine. Just keep on walking. 
uh, and stay positive and, you know, just basic things to get them going because they need it. They need it. So true. I'm sure the listeners have noticed, Chris, that there's a slight twang to your speech and your speech has a very distinct pattern to it. Tell us a little bit about where you come from and where you originate from. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as, as you can hear, this is a real African. Um, I was born in, in Zambia. Um, and, you know, so that is sort of going up to central South Africa, south of the continent of Africa. And um, my my dad was a farmer there, you know, and he was a really a good farmer. He loved his farming. It was a wonderful farm we lived on. And um, then I did my schooling in what was still Rhodesia those days. And as an adult, I moved to, to South Africa. Um, so, yeah, it's, I've been, I'm pretty much an African. <laughs> yeah, that's my background. We've been living, we've had the privilege of living in New Zealand now for what, going on 15 years. So this really has become home for us, and uh, we just so love it. But, yeah, I'll never lose that twang. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know whether twang is the right way to describe a, an African accent. I actually rather love it. But I just wondered what um, what it was like for you in Zambia as a young boy, and, and where did you go to school? Give us a little picture of what your life was like back then. Oh, look, those were just glorious days. Um, Growing up as a as a white kid on a, in a farm in Africa, um, all the little black kids they were my mates. I could speak their language long before I could speak English, and uh, we would just go out into into the fields. And I had a, a little pellet gun or a BB gun or air gun. What you know, everybody has a different uh, name for this, and. We would pretend we're the big hunters, you know, and we'd go out hunting rabbits and mice. So we were just out, you know, every day get, just getting dirty, me and my, my African friends. And it was an absolutely idyllic, idyllic life until the day that we had to just get out. Unfortunately, uh, politics played a big role, you know, and there was a huge insecurity Um going around and uh yeah sadly we just had to leave very quickly and that's when um as a family we moved relocated to what was then Rhodesia um so yeah you know a, a wonderful life ended abruptly and uh but yeah so I did my schooling in in Rhodesia and that too even though there was you know the war the civil war they had started and just became more and more intense as the years went by that had a huge impact on our lives um there was a loss you know loss of life friends who were killed in landmines and all kinds of horrific things so um as you probably know the history robert mugabe eventually took over he got power in in that country and became Zimbabwe. And a few years later, it was just absolutely tolerable. We just couldn't live there anymore because things had gone backwards so badly. The corruption was absolutely enormous. So um, 
once again, we had to just leave a country. And that is what took us to South Africa. Goodness, I just feel like we've landed in some of the most, you know, from a nice, gentle conversation in beautiful Wanaka. And we've just... <laughs> We've just landed or or stepped on a landmine or, or of history. Really, we've dropped into uh, a, both a personal and a political story that still haunts Africa. I think and still haunts the world. Tell me, how old were you when you had to leave suddenly out of Zambia? What sort of age were you? Yeah, I was still a kid. I was only ten years old. So by that time, I'd already been in Rhodesia in a boarding school. Um, Yes. So, but yeah, I was about 10 years old when we had to leave. And was that because there was danger? Yeah, it was just, you know, threats, threats to our lives. And uh, many other farmers also experienced the same. Many, many had to leave. They were just forced to leave. Um, Yeah, you know, sadly, nasty things started to happen and uh, it just became too dangerous. And there was a specific threat that caused my parents to say get out of here right now yeah so this was a personal threat made to your family mm-hmm. yes yes yeah and i appreciate you sharing this because this is uh this is a very difficult time to be growing up and what you say is that in many ways you had this idyllic life and then suddenly it just all stopped for you. Is that with is that right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, that you know, that part, that's you could say that chapter of my life just suddenly stopped quite abruptly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then you sort of went out of the frying pan into the fire by the sound of it. You went into <laughs> and were your family living in Harare or around that area when yes. you went into school there? Yes, yes, they were they were living there. And, um, you know, my dad would have loved to go farming again, but it just became too dangerous because of the war situation that we were living in. Um, You know, many of the farmers were targeted. It was mostly the farmers who were targeted. Um, So, yeah, from then on, it was town life uh, for us. But, you know, even so, even though there was a war, we still had a wonderful, wonderful life. It was a beautiful country, beautiful weather, you know, beautiful countryside, wonderful people, um, you know, and there was, it sounds probably impossible, but there was a wonderful relationship, a, a good relationship between the white and the black population in general. Of course, you know, you, there were problem areas and there was the war going on, like a civil war going on, but it wasn't. You know, um, how could I say it wasn't that strong apartheid thing that was happening in South Africa at the time. It was very, very different there. And there was still a lot of respect and trust between the white population and a huge part of the black population. Uh, Good friendships going on at that time, you know. So, yeah. So in spite of the negative, there was a lot of beautiful, a lot of positive as well. And tell us a little bit about what happened to you after you moved to South Africa and as a young man, what did you become interested in? What was your work? What was your life like as you once you got to South Africa? Yeah, well, um, I mean, what year would this that, be? 
Press. It was 1982 that we moved to South Africa. And in those days, um, the military was still compulsory because South Africa was also embroiled in its own war. So we were all, um, you know, it was compulsory to go to join the army, which I did. So that that took two, two and a half years out of my life. But my interest, um, probably just because of my background and my dad's influence, was um, was still farming. You know, I, I always desired to get back into farming. And um, so I went and did a, a diploma in those days in agriculture, uh, you know, studied that for a few years. and. Yeah, after that, my life was always involved, or mostly, mostly involved in some aspect of agriculture. Um, it always remains very dear to my heart. Um, as a psychotherapist, Chris, I'm always very interested in our roots and in our background and how that influences us and what impact it has on us. Well, how did your family end up in Zambia, for example? And how, how did that come about? What do you know about your family's story? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, look, I come from an Afrikaans family, so, you know, the Boers. And my mom and dad all grew up on, you know, just farms. But um, the area my dad grew up in was very drought-stricken. They... They would often have droughts. It was a pretty hard area for farming. And in those days, I'm talking in the late 50s, middle 50s, that Rhodesia really opened up for, for the pioneers to go in and, you know, in inverted commas, to tame a country, you know, carve farms out of the bush, build infrastructure, um, create a nation in the country. So there were wonderful opportunities. And Zambia is just, oh, I mean, Zambia, all those countries are dream countries for farming, absolute dream countries. Yeah, you do have a lot of challenges. You could have droughts still. You could have floods, pestilences, but the opportunities were huge. So my dad, as a young man, grabbed that opportunity and um, just newly wed, they moved up into that part of the world and literally carved, you know, just plow down trees, pull down trees to go and plow, plow the soil. And in spite of many difficulties, many setbacks, many challenges, they loved it and they made a huge, huge success of the farming enterprise, as did most other uh, people who went in, you know, uh, pioneers who went in. Um, so, yeah, you know, the roots are still there. I'm still a Boer, an Afrikaner, and uh, that's who I am. And um, I'm very thankful for, you know, some beautiful um, culture, you know, that's that's come down the line from my family. There's been a great deal of prejudice against the Boers, and there's been a great deal of um, misrepresentation. It's not considered to be a great culture by many people in the world. And yet I wonder, 
what you feel that you have taken or inherited from that tradition, from that background, from that Boer history, what you think has influenced you in any way or what you've taken from that culture and whether or not you think the world has judged the Boer culture fairly or not. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it's not only us. It's many, many, many other cultures have been misrepresented and uh, misunderstood so it's you know it's <laughs> that's that's the way it is, but you know we we're just a very small minority group. We've always been a very small minority group, but yet a group that's made a massive, massive impact on the history and making of Southern Africa. Um, so right from the early days, and oh by the way, what does Boer mean? It simply means farmer. That's a direct translation. They were farmers, and that's what they did. They knew nothing else um, for for many, many, many years, at least, until the industries came up and they became, many of them became very successful businessmen. But, you know, they were, um, they eventually established Afrikaans universities, which were top-class universities, uh, recognized throughout the world. they also had, you know, we, we had individuals who made history, like uh, Christian Barnard, who was the first guy to do a heart transplant. So there were really outstanding individuals amongst the Boers, the farmers. But, you know, we all came from very humble backgrounds. Our, our ancestors, they would move with ox carts into the interior, fight wars. Um, many of them died. In this process, it was very, very tough times, but they would also always persevere and make a home where they settled down. All they wanted to do was just, you know, give me my piece of of soil where I can farm and let's live in peace. And what came of that, you know, because it's Dutch and French background, French uh, Huguenots, most of my family are from the French Huguenot side. So with that came a very Calvinistic background, uh, a deep emphasis on the Bible. Uh, that was very much the the background, the you know the strength of the people um, coming together, having their church meetings. So through that came a, a pretty conservative culture. And I'm definitely um, a product of that. You know, that's that's had deep, yeah, you know, uh, my roots run deep in that aspect. Just a very conservative, um, respectful culture. Um, I hope that makes sense, Jerry. Well, yes, and I'm thinking about what you're saying about these kind of deep Calvinistic roots. And I'm also thinking about the amount of trauma that, even in your life, you've come through. You've come through some highly traumatic regions in Africa. Your family lost everything. It sounds like almost overnight, by the sound of it, your family lost the farm of, of back-breaking labor from your father. And did he get anything for his farm, or did he literally walk away with nothing? No, he literally walked away with nothing. You know, just the clothes in their back and what they could get in the car and off they went. And this... And this after spending how many years building a highly successful farm? 
Oh, yeah, 20 years easily. Yeah. And this was a farm that did what? What was the farm producing? Oh, we were producing um, maize or what do you call it, uh, corn. Um, it was beef and uh, some other stuff, but it was mainly a corn farm because that was a staple food for for the population. You know, it was very, very highly sought after food um, for Africa. And, uh, yeah, they were wonderfully successful in, in doing that. How many people do you think your father's farm and the farm you grew up in, how many people do you think that farm was feeding? Oh, that farm was feeding probably 20 to 30 people at least. And, you know, with all their children, you know, housing the families. Um, so we had a huge impact on, on many people. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really good, good setup. It was happy. Everybody was happy. Um, you know, we could provide schooling for them. We could provide, uh, access to hospitals for them, good medical care. And, uh, it was a very positive environment for those people who worked and stayed on the farms. And I'm wondering, when you talk about 30 people, do you mean, I'm thinking about what the farm produced as well in terms of the maize. How many, would that be, wouldn't it be a lot more than that? That seems a very small number to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, those were just the people who worked on the farm. So they were employees who who worked on the farms. But, you know, we produced thousands of tons of maize that exceeded local consumption and was exported so zambia was a great exporting country um it exported huge amounts of food you know maize beef um not so much sheep it wasn't a sheep growing area but in those days tobacco tobacco was a massive industry many other things as well you know even fisheries it became a rich exporting country agriculture was just fantastic as was rhodesia you know um same it's it had the potential to feed the whole of africa it was so so good real commercial farming it wasn't subsistence farming it was real big commercial farms well it sounds like a massive undertaking and it sounds like you know 20 years of labor did you ever get to visit your farm later on in life did you ever get to see what had happened yes i did uh many 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 years later um i did go back to the farm and you know like so many other farms it's just turned to nothing um the people who took over the farm were unfortunately not able to they didn't have the skills to carry on farming so Nature just took it back, you know. It just it looks pretty much like if you go through the farm now, you can't believe what used to be there. And um, sadly, the people are just um, living in abject poverty on the farm. You know, um, they've gone back to subsistence farming, just providing enough for them and hoping it will be a good year. So, yeah, you know, sadly, in and all the people that worked on the farm, they had to leave. You know, their source of income dried up. 
and heaven knows what happened to there. I don't. But things deteriorated drastically, you know, at that point when the commercial farmers were kicked out. That's happened in Zambia and Zimbabwe and sadly, you know, many other countries in Africa as well. Um, it was the story in Kenya, Tanzania, where once commercial farmers could do a lot for the for the industry of the country. Um, that just abruptly came to end. Yeah. This must have been heartbreaking. It must have been heartbreaking for you to revisit, to go back after many years and see what had happened to really all the incredible creative and hard work of your father and your mother. And, and really there is a whole generation of a whole generation of farmers, I, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was, Jerry, you know, but it also taught me wonderful lessons because, you know, going back, I was just wrestling with this. Um, why? You know, you always ask the question, why, why, why? Why is this? Why is that? But, you know, by God's grace, I suddenly had a revelation of, forgiveness to absolutely forgive you know forgive forgive everybody and everything you know and move on move on this isn't life you know we are not tied to a piece of ground a piece of property to a dream there we're not tied to that life is so much bigger than that and the greatest lesson I had to learn there, and I'll say this again, it was only by God's grace that I could learn this, was that my destiny, my life is so much bigger than just a farm. There's such a bigger role that I'm called to play. And move away. Stop looking back. Just look ahead. So in spite of all the, the heartaches and the challenges, we just grew stronger. And, you know, I can say that from my whole family, my mom and dad as well. They didn't look back. They just said, well, that was great. That was a good innings. But um, what's next? What's next? Always what's next? And I know, I'm sure the listeners can really identify with us if we say life is full of challenges. You know, that was my challenge. But everybody else has equal or greater challenges. And just to forgive, forgive and say, hey, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It doesn't mean anything. We're still alive. We still have life. And look at the new opportunities that we have. Had I stayed there, I would never have had the opportunity to come to Wanaka. Look what I have now. You know, it's so beautiful. We're so blessed. We're so privileged to, to have what we have now. and. Yeah, so looking back at that, there's no pain, no pain whatsoever. It's just good memories. I'm sure many listeners will be kind of applauding and really resonating with what you're saying, Chris, because, you know, in, in my work, people often think that someone like a psychotherapist is dwelling on the past and going back and looking at all the terrible things. Um this this isn't true at all. In fact, what strikes me is the reservoir of resilience 
that your family must have had. And to me, that speaks of enormous wisdom and depth of relationship with each other, with the land. There is, what do you think is the cause of such strong resilience in you and in your family to go through what many people listening with me, oh my God, 20 years, building a farm, building a life, and then literally overnight, it being taken away and still Mm -hmm. being able to move forward and be positive and be philosophical, to be quite stoic, if I might say so, in Mm -hmm. that, hey, what's this? What can I learn here? You know, I'm, I'm hearing a very profoundly healthy resilience. But what do you think gave your family, your father, your mother, that kind of resilience? What do you think is at the root of it? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and I'm I am just the opposite than you. I'm not a psychotherapist at all. <laughs> but, you know, Jerry, it's, it's interesting because just the other day, um, a, a dear friend of mine and I were talking about this whole topic of resilience. And he had just come from a bit of a um, trip up the West Coast to go back in his roots where his grandfather or great-grandfather worked on a mine. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the mine, but it's very close to Greymouth. And the history of the mine he just relayed to me was incredible. And the point of it is the resilience those people had, that generation had to just absolutely grit their teeth and just push forward. And how was it? Because those people had the greatest opposition, the greatest challenges, difficulties. Life was so hard for them. I mean, they were kids working in the mine. There was no other option. It was survival. If you're going to survive, you better start working and just grit your teeth, bite the bullets, and push on. And that's that's the resilience that built this incredible country that we're we're living in. Um, it's the resilience that tamed Africa. And there's no way that we can build resilience without opposition, without backlash, without trouble times, without trauma in our lives, without sickness, without death. There's just no way you can build that resilience. But what what is about us that when we are faced with these challenges, it makes the stronger stronger and the weaker weaker? And that is the big question. I think you're going to be able to answer that much better than I. But I just in my simplicity, I would say it's just the attitude we have and the faith that we have and the belief in tomorrow and a reason for living, a purpose for living to say, Yep, challenging times, but hey, we're going to just push through this no matter what. And every time we get through this challenge, we're just stronger and deeper, and life is more valuable than it was before. It feels to me sometimes that in the middle of all that toughness, of that getting through things, of that gritting your teeth, of surviving... We sometimes, well, we often don't get much chance to attend 
to the inner life. And by the inner life, I mean the life of the emotions, the development of our ability to form relationships, our ability to learn and grow and find wisdom. Many of the people I work with have been so crushed that they've forgotten that there is something called the spiritual path. And yet almost everyone I work with, as they become balanced, as they find support, as they don't have to deal with this on their own, as they have someone to walk with them through the valley of bones, it's it's like they start to discover with just a little bit of help that they are far more than mere survival. I often work in the middle of failure. I Mm. often work in the middle of collapse. I often work Mm. in the middle of what looks like a breakdown. Mm. And I'm reminded of that in the middle of that place, there's a doorway, there's an opening, there's a learning. Mm. And sometimes Mm. I think in the if we're having to survive all the time, we don't have time or space or support to process and deal with what's happened in the past. So in some respects, we carry the past with us if we don't deal with it. I almost sit on the opposite side of the fence to you, and this is why this is such an interesting discussion. You're describing describing a really powerful, strong, resilient kind of culture that gets on and and, and learns. Can I I just interfere you, you know? It is you meant to be in the chair, mate, so I don't know why I'm talking so much. (laughs) No, 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 because what you're saying just – it helps me also think about these things. And uh, I am so wary of creating an impression that I'm such a tough, strong guy because I'm not. I really am not. In all this, I could just say, praise God for family, for friends who were always there to help me. You can't do these things alone. You can't go through this tough thing alone. And for me personally, my faith has been the most important, important aspect that has always carried me and grown me. You know, um, I just know through this that I could never do it alone. I'm not the tough guy. I'm everything but the tough guy. We need each other. You know, we we need people like yourselves, Jerry, to help us. Um, I think it's a noble thing you're doing just to help somebody just on this hurdle, over this hurdle. Okay, right, off you go again. Uh, We all need this in life. And one thing that for me has really been um, really important and – once again, uh, a really good friend of mine and I have been talking about this, and this is our identity. Who are we? And for me in my faith, I ask the question, who is my identity in Christ? And in that lies an incredible sea of new discovery. Um, who am I really? And, you know, to be, I think for anybody to be able to really clearly say, this is who I am, not because I'm so good, not because I'm so smart, or the way I look, or the amount of money I have, that doesn't matter anything. If you take all those things away, if you strip everything bare, what remains behind? What is the core? Who am I? And to me, that is, yeah. 
as I said, it's, it's, it's an important thing that we need to wrestle with, Jerry. I think we're right on it now. Now I'm getting very excited by this conversation because I think unless you've had everything taken from you, you've never really lived. Because without all those props that make us think we're this or we're that or we're the other, if things are taken away, if you have suffered a catastrophic loss, then I think life begins. When you start to ask yourselves, we ask ourselves, well, who on earth am I? Who on earth am I? Mm-hmm. When I do not have these false identities of, of status or property or job, or when everything is taken from you, then life begins. And I, you know, I, I love the story of Job in the Bible yeah. for that. Oh, totally. but in many ways, isn't that what that's about? Yeah. I hate that story. No, <laughs> but I don't want to be a joke. But yet, yes, it is such an important, important story. You know, it's not a story. It's it's a real happening. There's so much that we can learn and apply to ourselves, the suffering this man had to go and endure and the victory, the victory. That, well, I, I'm in danger of talking to someone who I regard as knowing the Bible far better than I do. But that book sits in the middle of the Bible like a thorn amongst roses, doesn't it? It's like it says suffering, suffering, failure. And you see, I'm a little bit addicted to it. I, I have to confess, maybe there's something perverse about me, but I actually love it when things break down, because in those moments, we find chinks in the armor of our false images of ourselves and our false ideas. And in my treatment room, I see chinks of light coming through the brokenness that I see. And there's something very weird because, you know, when someone walks into my room and says, oh, you know, I've had it, I've had it up to here. I've just, I'm over it. I just can't take anymore. I kind of rub my hands together in glee and go, whoopee, now we can really work, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's when we come to the end of ourselves, you know, let's say, right. Okay. There's nothing left. Mm. Who am I? What's in there? How can I rebuild? It's so important. It's so important, yeah. And isn't it interesting how many people, when they reach those points, that's the time when people turn to the spiritual, where they turn to God, where they turn to something, where they realize, where we realize that we ain't all that we're made out to be, that we are insufficient in ourselves. Oh, totally, totally, Jerry. You know, um, it is and I think this is why God allows us to go through these things so that we can realize it's not about us. The world doesn't revolve about us in our wants and our needs. We are just part and a very important, very precious, very, very loved part of his creation. And we have a role to play. And in that, we can find incredible fulfillment. But it needs breaking down. It needs breaking down all these preconceived ideas, what we have. And if it's broken down and you've got nothing left, maybe that's a good place to start again. See, right, who am I really? What is my meaning? What's my purpose in life really? And as you say, that's where we realize that we're not only flesh. We are spirit. And the flesh is only temporary. It One day, this will turn to dust. 
But the Spirit lives forever. I believe that with all my heart. It lives forever. And that is the part we really, really need to nurture. That determines what happens, you know, our lives, our bodies now. But it also is an eternal focus that we all need to become aware of and ask. Start asking the questions. Where am I going? What is my purpose? Who am I really? Is it just this flesh, this world, this the Porsche I'm yearning for, the next big property in Wanaka? Or is there more to life than just this? Wow. Wonderful words. The issue of suffering is in front of our eyes every day, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if we, again, we just look back into the history of this country and see how people have suffered. Um, you know, just, just the mining relics around us. We go and look at the history of how they mined. The miners bringing women, children along. Just north of us, there's the town of Makarora, and there's such interesting history of those people who built the Haast Pass and the most incredible circumstances. And, you know, it was families. They did the schooling there. It took them years to build this pass. How much of us have the grit to do that? Here we just jump in our cars, and um, what, hour and a half later, we're in Haast. We had a beautiful drive, beautiful scenery. But what it took the generation ahead of us, before us, to do this. And so, as you say, New Zealand's got the same history than Africa did. People just working hard. And the question is, are we aware of it? Are we going to be the generation that two, three generations from now look back and say, thank goodness for this generation. They had the grits. They just persevered. And they gave us a better future. You know, that's big questions we need to ask ourselves. Do we have the same backbone than our fathers and forefathers did? And I think that's what brings us all the way through this history, these personal histories, your personal history from the past into the present. And we look at the history of the last three years where so much was taken away from so many people, so much disruption, so much damage, so much trauma has been done. And we're only just beginning to see the impact of that on society. And I suppose I'm, I want this program to be a voice of hope that mm. in the middle of the suffering of the last three years and the the terrible things that have been done to people, that we can also look forward and say, this is a time for me to find my meaning, to find my purpose, to find my strength, and maybe even to find the source of where I get my life from. Where does my life force come from? And I mm. think that center, what is the center of me? And all the way through these programs, what keeps reemerging is the importance of friends, of family, of community, of people. What is our meaning? What is our purpose? And I think mm. that what you've told me today and told the listeners today, Chris, is I think what gets you out of bed, if I might dare to suggest, is the meaning that your life has, that what gets you out of bed is the meaning of your life. Yeah, 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Our lives are precious. Our lives are purposeful. We don't just exist. We're not amoebas. We are human beings with a purpose. And we've always got to keep that in mind, ahead of us, in front of us, and get out of bed with joy. So let's use another beautiful day. Let's go for it. On that beautiful note, Chris Nell, I want to thank you for sharing your life and your journey with me and the listeners here in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you so much for sharing your life, your family, your past, your history, your ancestors, and sharing your story with us here. Chris Nell, thank you so much. Oh, Jerry, it was just a huge pleasure. And um, I just want to encourage you, carry on doing what you're doing. I thank you for, you know, all these years that I've been observing you, you know, for the work that you've been doing here. It's been awesome. You've helped so many people and just carry on doing that. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for your friendship. Much appreciated. Well, right back at you. (laughs) (laughs) So what reflections can we take from that session with Chris? Well, One of the overriding takeaways for me was this one simple word, gratitude. And I'm sure you've heard many, many people talk about gratitude, but didn't we just hear a living example of gratitude that seemed to infuse everything that Chris said? And in that session, we certainly traveled through some trauma, didn't we? Right from the Way back in the 16th century, by the way, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre uh, was actually in the 16th century, not the 17th century. I'm ashamed to admit my history isn't very strong on that. But when the French Huguenots, the, the Calvinists, were massacred in France, many fled all over Europe. And quite a few, as we learned a couple of weeks ago with René de Manchy, fled to Holland. Then we've also heard the story of these tough Boers in South Africa, the picture of these pioneers on their horse and carts, looking for land to grow and to settle on. They were very much a dispossessed people. The conflicts and the wars and the death that they would have gone through, all the way to Chris growing up as a young lad in a farm in Zambia, and then moving to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, into South Africa. Do you get the feeling of a displaced, wandering people? These are all beautiful places, but they're also places of enormous conflict and trauma. And Chris has traveled through them from a very young age. And what I will take away is this vivid description of his family farm in Zambia, and their overnight loss of what amounted to 20 years of hard work and building what sounded like a beautiful community. Talk about political ideology, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The loss of many, many farmers in that time impoverished this country. Where was the nuance? Where was the wisdom in sorting this out? Where were the elders? Another theme that came up, Chris's role as an elder. Where are the elders in our community? Now, don't get me wrong. I understand fully 
that there were many wrongs that needed to be put right. No dispute about that. But really, was that the best solution possible? And what did we learn from Chris? Well, I think we learned some answers to the question, how do we get on with life despite trauma? And Chris shared with us how most important to his family culture was a belief in being positive, of seeing the value in everyday life. Don't look back. Holding, not surprisingly, gratitude for each day, for being alive, not dwelling on regrets. Recognizing that really it is the opposition in life, the opposition that we experience that actually makes us stronger. And the importance of a sense of purpose. How often are we hearing that in these interviews? Find your purpose and make sure that it is a true purpose and not a purpose driven just by a vainglorious ego. And very often we can distinguish true purpose when that purpose involves serving others and serving our community. And that's why in this program, I'm only interviewing people who have contributed, just like Chris and his wife Uta have contributed to welcoming in members of their community every week to a very loving and accepting and open discussion of the real meaning that the Bible had to first century Judean people. A kind of history with Bible study or Bible study with history. More than anything, though, I think most of us go for the tea and cakes afterwards. (laughs) And what were the top tips that we could take from this session with Chris? Well, did you hear the value he placed on family, friends, and community? And we even had quite a little discussion about how we make sense of suffering, a real spiritual question. And I think at one point, Chris asked the question, not only who am I and what is my purpose, but who am I with God? So there was such a rich amount of value for me in that conversation. But I want to put a slightly different picture, one I actually believe Chris has gone through himself in some way. We didn't have time to delve into the personal journey that Chris went on. But do you remember him talking about visiting his farm and seeing the desolation and destruction of all the work that his father and his mother and his family put in? He went on a kind of pilgrimage by the sound of it. And he learned to forgive. Well, at the end of dealing with trauma, almost always comes forgiveness, whether or not it's been asked for. You see, last week I talked about trauma being a many-layered cake. When we survive trauma, we kind of shut the door on it and we get on. But unless we reopen that door at a later point and we start to process that trauma, then in fact we don't move on at all. We carry the baggage of our undealt trauma with us. We carry it on our shoulders. It's like picking up baggage as we go on through life. Dealing with and processing our trauma is the most important aspect of trauma. But we could be forgiven for thinking that 
once we've survived the upset, the trauma, the loss, we should just get on. And although that sounded like what Chris was saying, I don't believe that is what Chris does. In fact, if ever I had a trauma that I was confronted with and I needed support, someone to lean on, someone to talk it over with, someone to share it with, Chris would be one of the first people I would go to here in my local Wanaka community because he understands trauma. And that's what I mean if you haven't reached true forgiveness. And I don't mean a kind of faux forgiveness, a false forgiveness here. I mean a genuine, open-hearted, loving forgiveness where you can see that the person or the people or the country that hurt you were all probably just doing their best. And if they weren't, that you have the capacity to forgive them nonetheless. In these programs, you often hear personal spiritual views. We heard Sandy Murphy's very spiritual view through her yoga practice. And in this session, we heard Chris's incredibly spiritual view on life. And although he never said it, I could hear a profound Christian view on forgiveness in which the voice of Jesus in the Bible says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, that's a tricky one when you want revenge and you want justice and you want to be righteously justified. So in some ways, what I'm talking about here is moving through trauma and reaching genuine forgiveness. And forgiveness is where you no longer carry it with you. You're free of it. And we must all find our personal route for that. But for me, the image of Chris's pilgrimage back to Zambia, back to that farm, to see the desolation and the destruction, and to find forgiveness in his own words. Now there, what we all saw was how trauma is processed. Now we don't know the details, and I didn't pry. We don't know how Chris went through that. There wasn't time in this rich story of the tapestry of his life. But I'm reminded of the medieval practice of pilgrim, pilgrims and pilgrimage. Something about the physicality of a journey, something about going on a journey. For example, here in Wanaka, which is kind of a long way away from a lot of people in New Zealand, I invite people who inquire about therapy or whatever to consider taking a pilgrimage all the way down to Wanaka. And I'm not promoting anything here, but Wanaka used to be a place of Maori pilgrimage. The tribes from all around the coast would come inland to the beautiful place of Wanaka every year, and they would trade, and they would farm for the eels, the rich eels, confusingly called tuna. <laughs> in the Maori language. Took me a while to work that one out. I kept thinking people were fishing for tuna in Wanaka Lake. <laughs> but they also came for healing. This was a healing centre. And I don't know, I came here for my grandson, but I seem to have landed in a section of New Zealand that is really powerfully healing. Place has healing. Each of us often finds a place where we go for healing, a special river, a view on top of a mountain, and we go and we sit and we contemplate our lives and we we process. And I sometimes invite people to make a pilgrimage, to travel down here, to come down and be in this beautiful place. And, and I promise to give them a session every day. 
over three, four, five days. To make their healing a journey, a pilgrimage. I wonder how many listeners can think of going to a retreat or a course and it being a profoundly physical experience, the getting your packing together, your intention, your nervousness about where you're going. There's an edge to pilgrimage, isn't there? You're actually doing something with your body. And this is really important when it comes to processing trauma. And I guess that is what this reflection is all about. How do we process trauma? Well, one of the ways we process trauma is we have to return to it. We have to process it. We have to touch it. That's why I called my book Touching Trauma, Building Resilience. And you see, if we want to simplify trauma, then we just need to look at trauma as loss. All trauma, all trauma is about loss. Whether it is the shock and loss of a limb in a violent conflict, what we call shock trauma, or it's the developmental trauma of growing up in a place where things weren't really all that good. Indeed, New Zealand as a nation is a nation full of people who left places that weren't all that good to find a new place where they could create a better life. And that is as true of the Māori as it is of Europeans and people from all around the world. In many ways, you could consider New Zealand as a land of escape from trauma. Now, that's a vast generalization. But I wonder, when we track back, when we go through how we ended up here, I wonder if we'll find trauma. I wonder if you'll find some trauma. So then the big question is, how do we, as New Zealanders, process trauma? Well, one of the ways we need to do this is physically. Trauma sits in our bodies. We do need to reflect. We do need to talk. The coffee catch-up is at the heart. The therapist, the talking, the sharing your story, these are at the heart of processing. But so too is the way, the unique way, in which trauma latches onto our nervous system. As we survive, as we get on, it has to go somewhere. And it goes into our nervous system. And I just want to read you a very relevant section from my book. I wrote a chapter called The Physiology of Grief. Here's how it goes. Right from the beginning of this book, grief and loss has played a central role in our understanding of trauma. Indeed, all trauma comes down to what we have lost. And all recovery from trauma comes down to how well we have grieved for this loss. Trauma is about who we have lost or what has been taken from us. We must grieve to move on in our lives, and we must grieve physically. Otherwise, the body will carry this grief as a burden throughout the rest of our lives. In most Western cultures, we no longer encourage the physiological release of grief that can still be seen in many traditional societies. In these traditional cultures, 
The physical activities of wailing, chest beating and collapse are expected from all the close family members of the deceased. But in most Western cultures, the stiff upper lip has prevailed. We must be stoic and avoid showing too much affect, the outward display of emotion. In fact, we must demonstrate that we are unaffected. No outward display. Emotion is seen as a sign of weakness. But we can learn a great deal from the ritualistic grieving behavior of many traditional societies. You see, I just want to insert here, I should have written this in the book, (laughs) but I want to insert here that when we suppress our affect, our emotional display, a display of our emotion, we're confusing getting through the trauma with getting on with life after trauma. In the moment of trauma and loss, it's often very necessary to suppress our emotional reaction. But we do need to process that trauma. And there's a confusion between survival of trauma, which often does involve a display of non-effect, and processing, which requires the affect, the outward display of emotion. And they're two very different environments. And we should only show the affect in a safe place, shouldn't we? With a safe person. So what I'm about to share with you about how traditional societies process grief has to be understood in the light of this confusion. I'm not talking about how you survive trauma. I suspect many listeners know more about that than I do. And what I am talking about is how we deal with the impact on our nervous system of the suppression of affect. The stuff we couldn't feel at the time. And in this way, the animals in nature show us something. There are many, many videos of wild animals that have been traumatized. And once they're out of danger, what we see them do is vigorously shake. And indeed, there's a rather wonderful approach to releasing physiological trauma from the human body called TRE, T-R-E, trauma release something. I'm sorry, I don't know what the E stands for, despite having gone through sessions with it as well. And that was taken directly from nature, a rather beautiful approach. So here's what I wrote in my book about some very physiological ways that traditional societies have understood not only about grieving and processing trauma, but also about the importance of our physiology. So the first thing I'd write about is wailing. Here's what I write, wailing. Wailing tells us that what has happened is real. It cries out that something truly significant has happened. And we must honour this moment. We must not proceed with life as if nothing has happened. Wailing also brings people to us. People come to us. They reach out to touch us if we wail. They join with us. They hold us. You know what? They wail with us. The mirror neurons of millennia kick in and the grief is passed around the tribe like someone being pulled out of the sea by a line of heroic people, all holding hands. It is shared. It is honoured. 
and it is dispersed throughout the whole tribe. There is a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I believe it takes a village to help a person grieve and process their trauma. In the UK, we saw this with the death of Princess Diana in 1997. Right across the UK, the whole nation erupted in a moment of shared tribal grief that someone truly special and beloved had been taken from us. It was a time of communal grieving. And after wailing, I go on to talk about rending, rending clothes, tearing clothes. Rending clothes is another traditional grief behavior that sends a powerful physiological message to our body. It tells our nervous system that someone has literally been torn from our lives or something or some ability. Think about the loss of a limb or a sense. We must acknowledge the reality of this loss or we will carry the damaging shadow of its suppression into the future through illness and misery. Now, I haven't talked much about that today, but I can absolutely say, and I'm sure many listeners can relate to this, how many illnesses follow grief. And as we get older, one of the reasons we die is because there's more and more unprocessed trauma in our nervous system. It's not old age. It's the fact that as we get older, we have to deal with and process more and more. You can get by without processing trauma when you're young. But when you get to the great old age of 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, you're carrying more and more trauma in your nervous system and things start to go wrong. It's not just aging, in my opinion. It's unprocessed trauma. Health, vibrancy, resilience comes as a result of releasing the trauma. And we release it by facing it. Words are simply not enough. We're talking about rending. Clothing that was once precious to us must be torn. And this clothing will not be mended. And if it is mended, it will never look the same. The scar of its tearing will always be known to us. And sometimes people don't just rend clothes, they shave their heads. And this signifies the same physical sense of loss. They lose their hair. The hair is shorn from the skull in the same way that a beloved person or element or aspect of our life has been taken from us. And just to insert here, in the context of what's been taken from us, very often what was lost was our childhood. What was lost was safety. What was lost was our normal development because of what happened to us. So that was rending. And then the third one I write about in this book, and by the way, this is me, Jerry Pives, talking about how we process trauma, probably the most important subject on the planet right now. And I'm reading from my book, Touching Trauma, Building Resilience. And the third one I talk about here is beating the chest. I wonder how many of you have seen that on TV or been a part of it. Beating the chest, I'm, I'm reading now, beating the chest 
is yet another traditional behavior that sends a powerful physiological message to our nervous system. What it tells us is that we must continue with life. The fist beats against the chest to remind us that we are literally broken hearted. Yet the fist also tells the heart it must continue beating. I just want to pause on that. This is a remarkable physiological wisdom. On the one hand, the fist strikes the chest. I'm not reading now. <laughs> this is me talking to you. On the one hand, the fist strikes the chest to say, I am brokenhearted. And on the other hand, it strikes it simultaneously to say, and I must stay alive. Back to my book. We must stay alive. We must resuscitate ourselves. Our instinct is to join the one who died by dying ourselves. So we must beat the chest to remind ourselves not only of our grief and our loss, but also that we must come through this. Whenever death arrives of someone close or something precious to us, there is a dangerous instinct to throw ourselves onto the pyre with the burning body. Studies have shown that there is the greatest risk of suicide when someone nearby has died. This is why the tribe must be there, to hold us back from self-destruction. We see this very vividly in people collapsing onto the ground in traditional funerals, and the tribe picking them up again and again. I must stay with the person I have lost and die too, the grieving body, the grieving nervous system, the grieving physiology says. No, we shall not let you. You must stay with us, cries the tribe as they pick them up off the ground. So wailing, rending, and chest beating are all physiological behaviors that traditional societies required of family members when someone died. And while we're on the subject of grieving those we have lost, we're going to have to carry and process another grief that many have had in these terrible times we've been through, in which we were actually stopped by governments from getting together and grieving communally. Whatever grief we were going through compounded by the ludicrous idea that people get healthy by being alone. You'd have to be insane to think that that was true. So what is my takeaway from today's session with Chris? Well, my takeaway is the joy and love of life that happens when we properly process trauma. And I mean physically as well. And I've mentioned pilgrimage, but there are other ways. Sandy Murphy talked about the use of yoga to really engage with the body. I live my life using touch to help trauma release from the body. I mentioned a process called TRE, T-R-E, trauma release something. I do apologize. <laughs> but any approach around trauma that relates to the body and to the physiology is very, very important. But so too is the simplicity of sitting down and holding hands in a cafe with someone who is processing their trauma. Just that reaching out and touching can make so much difference. So the takeaway is do please go back and process your trauma as Chris clearly had. And remember, there are always professionals like me 
who've spent our lives learning not only to process our own trauma, but how to help other people process their trauma. And you never burden us when you come to see us. In fact, you fulfill our purpose in life. Remember how Chris talked about finding our purpose? Well, all the healers and therapists out there, that is their purpose. It's a kind of a weird one, isn't it? To sit with people in trauma. But that's what we do. There's no shame in seeking out therapists and healers. And try and do that face to face. Don't get caught up in this demonic idea that talking to someone on a computer screen is in any way like meeting someone face to face. I am an anti-Zoom therapist, just so you know. Take the journey. Find a local person. Please don't think that Zoom is anything other than a creation by a bunch of people, nerds, who don't understand what real human interaction is and what real healing involves. And if you can't do that, find a friend who is safe, who will hear you talk about the trauma you're carrying. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to, Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.